The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke in chapter number nine, and uh, as you're turning there and getting uh, to your spot, we're going to pick up in verse number 28 tonight, uh, but we are continuing through our studies here on Sunday evenings through the book of Luke, and we've had different pauses and things along the way since we started in chapter number one and verse number one. Different uh, folks have preached on uh, Sunday evenings. Uh, of course, some of our teen young men have already have preached during Sunday evenings or during teen cafes and such, and we've had guest speakers and, and, and the likes, but... Uh, Brother Tyler was talking to me. He's helping to organize our YouTube channel. Now listen, you need to go check it out. He's doing a wonderful job already with that, and it's going to be laid out and organized well so that you might be able to go back and, and uh, find a specific message or at least the, the date in which a message was preached and such. And I'm so excited that he's offering his help with that as well. But he made the comment up to me. He's like, Pastor, I started with the Son of Man, that series on Sunday night. We started that in November of 2019. That's a lot of things to go through. And uh, here we are in chapter number nine, and how rich the book of Luke has already been. And to, to be able to spend this time over a year already and going through uh, the book of Luke, and still much to come still, uh, but we praise God for his word and uh, for what is found therein. And uh, again, we want to pray tonight that the Lord will speak to our hearts and that he will move in our lives and reveal something about him tonight about himself uh, that we might be able to glorify him in and that we might be able to serve him better because of it. And so we find ourselves in Luke 9 and verse number 28 tonight. And verse number 28 begins and it says, And it came to pass uh, about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. Uh, glycerine, I'm sorry. And uh, behold, there talked with him two men which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his, uh, uh, his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and uh, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. Verse number 34, it says, While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of, uh, out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, uh, Jesus was found alone. And they uh, kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to bless tonight. Our Father, we do come to you this evening and pray that you would just bless our time together in your word tonight. Lord, give me the words to speak as I deliver it. Lord, help us to hear from it. Help us to know more about you tonight than what we, uh, as we leave than what we came here knowing. Lord, help us honor and glorify you through everything said and done. And help us uh, now, Lord, as we seek your will tonight. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 9 has already included a, a whole plethora of events and things that have taken place that we've studied. We began chapter number 9, and chapter 9 started with Jesus gathering his 12 apostles together and, and giving them power and authority, not only to preach, but also to uh, 
to be able to accomplish miracles, and he uh, sent them out, and they went out, and they accomplished many great things for him. Uh, during this time, the word of who Jesus is and was and what he was doing was spreading like wildfire. We even read about Herod wanting to know more about who this Jesus is. He asks some folks, who is this Jesus? And what in the world's going on? And it was even uh, explained to him that possibly Jesus could have been John the Baptist. Now that was troubling to, to Herod because he had beheaded John the Baptist. So he said, well, maybe he's back to terrorize me and to haunt me from the dead. But nevertheless, he said, I'm not going to take anyone else's word for the matter. I want to see this Jesus. I want to experience the things that he's, he's saying and doing. I want to see the miracles performed. But my friends, I, I don't believe Herod was wanting to meet Jesus so that he could have a life transformation. I believe he wanted to see Jesus as a spectacle, as someone who would go to the circus and watch uh, some sideshow attraction or something along those lines. And that's what he was desiring to see of Jesus. But the Bible tells us in verse 10, as the apostles returned, that uh, they spoke to him about what had taken place. They had had a, a long and, and a, uh, a tiring uh, period of ministry and, and work for their Savior. And so Jesus takes them out into a, a desert place and, and uh, they find, try to find some rest. But the, the, the throngs of people hear where Jesus is at, and they leave the city and come out into the wilderness and uh, find Jesus there and, and press upon him to teach and to, and to preach unto them. And so Jesus takes the time to do so, and after the day has been spent, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and say, listen, we need to send everyone back. I mean, they need to go home. Everybody's hungry. T people are tired. We don't have anything to feed these people. And uh, Jesus says, instead of sending everyone home, he says, make them sit down. He has them sit down in groups of 50, right? And we've studied this. And he takes that f those five loaves and two fish that that little boy had, and he blesses it and, and multiplies that. And what a wonderful and, and astonishing miracle that took place there. After all that is said and done, in verse number 18, we find that Jesus is now alone with his disciples, and, and uh, he asks them, who, do, who are people saying that I am? And just like the, some had said to Herod, uh, they said, well, maybe you're John the Baptist, and, and uh, maybe other prophets of old and such. But Jesus then paused and asked them, the disciples directly, who do you believe that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ of God. We, of course, continued on in, in verse number 23. Um, he said, it says, and he said unto, uh, to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is taking place right after Jesus had told them of what he would have to do, that he'd go to Jerusalem, that as he was there, he would be crucified, that he would be buried, and that he would eventually rise again. Now, having heard all of this information and just having been challenged about the, uh, the concept of discipleship, surely the, disciple, the disciples had to be shocked uh, by the thought of Jesus going to Jerusalem, going through the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that he would experience, and in, ending up uh, finding his way to the cross to be put to death. It seems as if, though, they had forgotten the last part of his story, though. They heard him when he said that he would be crucified they heard him when he said he would be buried 
but it's like they turned off the hearing aids, right? Uh, when he said, I'm going to rise again, and they didn't consider any of those things. But notice, here in the same chapter, chapter number 9, verse number 22, he states this. He says, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief, and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised the third day. He said it's going to happen, but unfortunately, they forgot the promise of the resurrection. But after he taught about true discipleship, which we discussed last week, he made an amazing statement, and we alluded to it even last week in verse number 27. I want to draw your attention there again before we kick things off tonight. And notice verse number 27. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. As we alluded to last week, I believe we see the fulfillment of that statement in what we've just read tonight. About eight days later, the Bible tells us that Jesus takes some of his disciples, Peter, James, and John specifically, up to a mountain in which he is able to reveal his glory to them. They hear God the Father himself speak in the midst of this cloud as they are surrounded by this cloud. And I believe this is the fulfillment of that, if you wanted to call it prophecy or statement, as we are studying tonight. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. That word transfiguration, uh, it illustrates to us uh, that these what these disciples uh, would see uh, happen to Jesus or know would happen to Jesus after his resurrection. He would completely and utterly be, uh, be in his glory and, and at his rightful place at the right hand of his father. Someone has once put it this way, that the transfiguration was to open up their understanding as to the glorious victory of the kingdom through the atoning death, resurrection, and final advent of the Messiah. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, quote, transfiguration means a change in appearance that comes from within, and it gives us the English word metamorphosis. And we find here that as we consider this concept of transfiguration, when we consider the fact that Jesus, his glory is, is manifested, is shown, I want to take some time tonight and consider three things from this portion of Scripture. First off, I want us to notice uh, the manifestation of Jesus' glory. We see this in verses 28 through 32. In verse number 28, it says, And it came to pass about an eight days after these, these sayings. What sayings? The sayings of the fact that he would die and be buried and rise again. And after the sayings of challenging them about true discipleship. But he says, And eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the, fa the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment uh, was white and glistering. And behold, it says in verse number 30, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his uh, decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Notice verse number 32, but Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. The transfiguration was essentially, if you may, a revealing of Christ's glory that had previously been veiled by his human flesh. Jesus, being born in, of a virgin, uh, being uh, born in that lowly manger, living a perfect and sinless life, was 100% man, yes. But at the very same time, 100% God as well. 
Much of his glory and much of his divinity was veiled in that human flesh, but that did not, uh, did not diminish who he was. It didn't take away from his deity. It didn't take away from the fact that he was a part of the Godhead. But here at the Mount of Transfiguration, as he is transfigured, it essentially is revealing who he is as deity, who he is as God, that had been previously veiled by his human flesh. But notice this manifestation was revealed to a select group as we read in verse number 28. It tells us that Peter, James, and John were part of this group that was brought there. And he took these three disciples and went up into a mountain, it says, to pray. Only Luke mentions the purpose of going into the mountain as the purpose of prayer. But he takes three faithful disciples with him. He chose Peter, James, and John that they might be a witness to this transfiguration, that they might be able to be a witness to what had taken place and the fact that he is truly God. Peter had already said, you are the Christ of God. He verbally announced and proclaimed who God was, but this is an opportunity for Jesus to prove it, to, to verify it to these disciples. And, it, and it's interesting uh, to me that he not only takes these three faithful disciples, but I believe they were three witnesses of verification as well. Consider with me what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 16, where he says, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be, what? Established. It's to verify it. It's to give proof. It's to give validity about what is being said and what is being discussed. The facts of his transfiguration were substantiated by the presence of these two or three witnesses that day. And this was to verify what would take place as the glory of the Lord was revealed that day. The purpose of taking three disciples to witness the transfiguration was related to the understanding or even perhaps the misunderstanding that was in Jesus' day about the work of the Messiah. There was some understood that the Messiah would come to save mankind, but there were many that misunderstood the work of the Messiah in Jesus' day. They didn't have any clue in how the Messiah would work to bring about glory to the kingdom of God, how that kingdom would be established and erected. They believed it to be an earthly kingdom. They believed that Jesus or the Messiah would come and that he would overthrow the Roman government and, uh, and kick Caesar out of, uh, out of power and take to himself the power over the entire world. But my friends, we understand, hindsight being 2020, that that is not the plan of God and that we understand that he came not to set up an earthly kingdom but a heavenly or a spiritual kingdom. But there was some misunderstanding about that. And so the fact of bringing these men with him verified who he was, and it verified the work of the Messiah, it proved who he was and what he would do to clear up the confusion, re confusion that was regarded uh, what exactly the Messiah would do and how Israel's kingdom would be established. The man manifestation of Jesus' glory was brought to a select group. But his manifestation was of, a, of his supernatural glory as well. Verse number uh, 29. It says, and, he and as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Now we find that Jesus' visage, if you may, was changed as he prayed. His glory now, that was there constantly, that had never left him, just veiled by that human flesh, that glory is now temporarily able to be seen. 
He is shining as who he is. He is the Lord God Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible tells us in verse number 29 that his face and his raiment shine. Adam Clark said about this, he said that the fullness of the Godhead, which dwelt bodily in Christ, now shone forth through the human nature. They were able to see past the, the, the veil of flesh and to see who exactly he was. Consider what Exodus 34, verses 29 through 30 state. Exodus 34, 29 and 30, it says, And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. And he came down from the mountain uh, that Moses wist not that his skin, uh, the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. When he had been in the presence of God Almighty, it changed Moses. Why? Because he was in the presence of God's glory. And what happened to Jesus was the fact of who he was. God himself was shining bright. And it was able to be seen for a temporary time exactly who he was. No, nothing, nothing hiding who he was. Consider John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But as the supernatural glory is manifested he, uh, it, we, we find that not only does his face and his raiment shine, but we also find that Moses and Elijah showed up. We read that in verse number 30. The significance of these two exact men showing up at this time of Jesus being glorified to commune with him would have been of great importance to Israel. And here's why. Both of these men that are mentioned, Moses and Elijah, were directly or indirectly, uh, that are mentioned directly or indirectly with the glorious coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament prophecies. It was prevalent tradition among the Jews that both Moses and Elijah would appear during the time of the Messiah. This was something that they proclaimed, this was something that they believed. And consider with me what Malachi chapter 4 and verses 4 through 6 state. Malachi 4 verses 4 through 6 says this, it says, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant which I commanded unto him in, in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming, and the, great, uh, uh, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Elijah was the representation of the prophets who foretold of Jesus' coming. Moses represented the law in which pointed to or was used as a schoolmaster to see our need for the Savior of Jesus Christ. And Moses and Elijah are reminders to us even of our own hope and glory. See, it was important that these two men were there because according to Jewish tradition, they believed that they would be back on the earth during the time of the Messiah's coming. Well, Jesus is the Messiah, my friends. And the fact that they were, again, on earth during the time of Jesus, more proof, more validity to who Jesus was, that he is God in the flesh. And as he was God in the flesh that night, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, my friends, we find that the Bible tells us that his glory shone out and that the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw with their own physical eyes the glory of God himself. Verific verification of who he was. 
But then they saw Moses and Elijah there. More verification of who Jesus is, the Messiah that had come to take away the sins of the world. But my friends, we read about Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah were there in, in bodies that were perfect and glorified. That's the eternal hope of every believer as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Philippians 3, 21, and who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. You wake up in the morning and you go to move and you say, ow, that hurts. One day that's not going to take place any longer. Because we will be in the presence of our Lord and Savior and we will be given a glorified body and the presence of, uh, of Moses and Elijah in those perfect glorified bodies gives us the hope of all believers that one day we will experience the same type of living. The manifestation of Jesus' glory was to a select group and the manifestation of Jesus' glory was uh, to manifest His supernatural glory. But the manifestation of Jesus' glory accomplished a specific goal as well. Notice verse number 31. Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. It showed when he was transfigured and shown his glory. It again reminded and provided for us the reason why Jesus came. Why he would come and be veiled in flesh. Why he would come and be despised and rejected. Why he would come and experience the pain and the torments that he would experience. This actually ties in with Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, we've been going through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights. We've not reached chapter number 9 yet. But as we just take a glimpse into chapter number 9, it tells us that the first portion of the 70 weeks is in which where uh, the, the, the fulfillment of Jesus' death would take place. In this prophecy, Daniel foretold that the Messiah would come and be cut off. Notice with me in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 26. Daniel 9, 24 through 26. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the Most High. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks, and threescore, and two weeks. And uh, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even the troublous times. Verse number 26, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be uh, with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. But Daniel pr prophesies of a time where the Messiah will be cut off. The beginning or the first part of that 70 weeks that he speaks of there uh, begins with Jesus Christ's death and ultimately his resurrection. And the purpose of his coming, the purpose of him even setting physically any steps on this, on this earth was ultimately so that he might die for you and I. What an amazing God we serve. To come and leave the splendor of glory so that we might know him. But he also came to complete God's plan. 
With Christ's death, two things would ultimately be accomplished for Israel and even all of the, for all people as well. One being the fact that the prophecies uh, concerning Christ's first coming and the purpose of it would be fulfilled. But then also that the plan of redemption would be accomplished. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Number one, tonight as we've considered this matter of transfiguration, we have noticed the manifestation of Jesus' glory. But notice number two with me tonight as we move into verses 32 and 33, the motion of Peter. In verse number 32, it says, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and uh, when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. At this historic moment that, is, that we read about, Peter's response was first the response of flesh. But ultimately, we see him responding in faith as well. Notice the, the motion of flesh here in verse number 32. We read there in verse number 32 that as all of this is taking place, it tells us that Peter, James, and John are not sitting on the edge of their seat trying to take it all in. They are knocked out asleep. Luke here shares a unique detail. He says that as Jesus prayed, the disciples drifted off to sleep. And it seems as if you read through this portion of Scripture that they awoke having missed almost the majority of the conversation. Because notice with me again, it says, but, uh, it says that as he's praying, they had fallen asleep. And, and it says that his, his fashion, his countenance was altered, his raiment, raiment white and glistening. Moses and Elijah show up and, and they're, they're con conversing with one another. And verse number 32 tells us that they were, they were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw all of this. And they see Moses and Elijah about to depart. And that's when P Peter speaks up. He says, whoa, hey, hold on. It's good for us to be here. I mean, uh, don't, don't, don't leave so quickly. Uh, we've missed everything that's taken place already so far. Don't let us miss anything else. Stick around a little bit longer. Jesus was glorified and these two men with him. I can't, I can't imagine the feeling that Peter, James, and John had to have waking up to see these things take place. There had to be some startled uh, feeling there. Even a little bit of fear, maybe. Uh, definitely excitement of what they are seeing and experiencing. Evidently, it seems as if Peter and, the, and James and John recognized Moses and Elijah for who they were. That's an interesting thing to consider as well. But nevertheless, there's all kinds of, a whole gamut of emotions they had to have felt. You would think that having fallen asleep at such an historic time as they did right there, that they would have learned their lesson. But don't forget what Luke chapter 22 tells us. And when he arose from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Yes, we see Peter's motion began with a motion of the flesh where he let the flesh take control and they fell asleep and they missed a, a, a tremendous thing that was taking place in their midst. But notice his motion of faith now in verse number 33. 
Verse number 33, and it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. And he says, I want to make one for you and Moses and Elijah. And he said all of this, the Bible says, before he even recognized or realized what he was saying. It just like blurted out of his mouth. Peter tries to prolong this moment. He says, I might have missed some of it, but I want to experience everything that I can now. And he, he wants to prolong it with the suggestion uh, that they celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles right there on that mountain. Now, the feasts uh, of the Tabernacles or the festival's main activity in those days would involve constructing booths in which the children of Israel or the Jewish people would live in for a week's time. The key festival in, the key festival in, Ju- in Judaism, this, it looked back to the time of God's provision in the wilderness uh, and uh, and reg- it was regarded as anticipation for God's ultimate deliverance. That yes, they were delivered from the time uh, of slavery and bondage in Egypt, but one day God would come and he would ultimately deliver them from this present world and they would spend eternity with him forever. The tabernacle not only shows or, or, uh, cons- uh, or, or uh, corresponds, if you may, to the first coming of Christ, But it also looks to the future when God would tabernacle with his people. I want want you to take your Bibles and notice this with me in Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. Ezekiel 27, or 37, verses 26 through 28. Verse number 26, it says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Verse number 27, my tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And verse number 28, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. And when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And it, it seems as if Peter understood the eschatological uh, meaning and the significance of what was taking place here with the importance of the presence of Moses and Elijah. And because of that, Peter wanted to continue this mountaintop experience. He didn't want it to go away. He, I, I could just imagine Peter feeling as if, man, I've been in the valley. I've been in the rut. I've been where I've been down and the stained and despondent. And here I am. I'm, I'm riding on cloud nine right now. I'm on the mountaintop. I don't want this to end. How often is that truly the response of the believer today even? You ever been at a time where you felt just in tune with the will of God? You've studied his word and you've pr- spent time in prayer and you've seen great things happening in the ministry and in your life. And you say, I just don't ever want this to end. I, mean, I believe that's a, 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 a reasonable response for the believer. Consider what Psalm 27, 4 tells us. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He said, every day of my life, I want to be able to experience these things. It's only natural for Peter to want to continue on experiencing this, no doubt. Notice as we continue on and move into verses 34 through 36, notice with me the message message from God. We've seen the manifestation of Jesus' glory. We've seen the motion of Peter. But now tonight, notice the message from God in verses 34 through 36. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. 
And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. God himself was present at this momentous occasion. God the Father himself making it and marking its special significance. The cloud's presence seemed to be God's answer to Peter's desire. Peter said, I want to tabernacle with these men. I want to erect these tabernacles for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But it's as if God was saying to Peter, no, Peter, there's no booth or or tabernacles needed since God himself had just wrapped them in his own glory. The Bible tells us that this cloud surrounded them and engulfed them. And God is saying, there is no need for you to provide a tabernacle for God or these prophets because God has just tabernacled you, Peter. What an amazing experience Peter, James, and John got to take place in. When God's voice ceased, though, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament saints disappeared. But notice the faithful message from God the Father in verse number 35. This is my beloved son. Hear him. As had occurred previously, God himself revealed an important message, a faithful message concerning who Jesus was. He again testifies the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. My friends, if there is nothing that we are able to, uh, nothing more that we're able to take away from any message or from any, any reading of the Word of God, but the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that's a worthwhile message anyway. Because unless one comes to the fact of the matter and believes with their heart that Jesus is the Son of God, there's no way of salvation. That's why it's important that as we consider what we believe and who we listen to in teaching and preaching and what churches we will attend and such, we have to figure out and ask the question, what do they do with Jesus? It's not enough just to speak the name of Jesus, my friends, because there's religions out there that talk about Jesus and even have his name in their denominational structure. But my friends, they don't believe Jesus to be the Jesus that is the son of God. They might teach that he's Satan's brother. They might teach that he's some special prophet. They might teach that he's some man that was able to perform some great things, but they don't teach that he's the son of God. My friends, if they don't, if we are not being taught from the word of God that Jesus is the son of God, then we are being taught a false doctrine. And Jesus, or God here, God the Father again here displays and and proclaims a faithful message that Jesus is the son of God. Psalm 2, verse number 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This strengthens Peter's earlier confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember the fact that Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah of God, the Christ of God. And we find that this just strengthens and verifies and validifies, uh, uh, gives validity, I'm sorry, to the fact that Peter had promised or proclaimed, I should say rather, that Jesus was the Son of God. We read Peter's own words in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 17 through 18, where he says, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and this voice which came from heaven we we heard and uh, when we were with him in the holy mount 
firsthand witness account of who Jesus is. But you notice the message didn't stop with just who Jesus was. Notice he goes on to say that Jesus is to be heard. I want to draw your attention just for the sake of laying foundation to this thought to Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse number 15, we read first off, it says, The Lord thy God will raise up to thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Who's speaking here? This is Moses. He says, God's going to raise up a prophet like unto me. You need to hear him. You need to listen to him. Move on to verse number 18 of chapter 18. Verse 18 says, I will raise up, I'm sorry, raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Verse number 19, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, uh, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. The reference that we've just read here in Deuteronomy is important because it marks Jesus as being that prophet that would be raised up like that of Moses. Consider John 12 and verses 46 through 50. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I come not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receive not my words hath one that judgeth, judgeth him. And the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment that I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. And the fact that, that God the Father said unto, uh, to the people that were there, this is my son, hear him. And Jesus goes on to say that what he speaks is the message from his father. And he's not going to be the one that's judging them, whether or not they accept or reject it. It's going to be the words that he has preached, the words of his father, that will ultimately judge whether or not they have an accepted place in heaven. That's why God said, hear him. Because he's proclaiming the message of the kingdom. It was a faithful message. But notice as I close the finished experience in verse number 36. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. With the culmination of God's words from heaven, Moses and Elijah are gone, and Jesus is left alone. For a time, the Bible tells us here that the disciples remained silent. I believe that this suggests here that the transfiguration is a time to reflect upon and not to be paraded in public proclamation. After all, there is a season, a time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3, 7 says a time to rend, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak. It was not time for Peter and James and John to start erecting monuments, but it was a time for introspection to see as the Lord had been changed for his glory to be revealed, for, for them to, to see how the Lord could change them. Going back to what I quoted from, from Warren Wiersbe, Wiersbe said, Transfiguration means a change in appearance that comes from within. It gives us the English word metamorphosis. My question today, as we consider the transfiguration of Jesus and how his glory shone from within to without, I wonder what kind of change or transformation is taking place within our lives. We have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
We have put our faith and trust in him. And he's given us his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. When we submit and surrender, he will do a transformation process within us. God desires to change us, and I believe he desires to change us in three ways as I close. He desires to change us at salvation. Consider what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God desires to change us when we accept him as our Savior at salvation. He desires to change us also in sanctification. We read in Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2, familiar verses as you've been studying through Romans on Sunday mornings, but verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So God desires to tr change us at salvation, and he does. He regenes us, my friends. He regenerates us. Where we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he's given us life and life anew. He changes us in sanctification, and that's the renewal process that takes place in our life. That is, as we submit to the Holy Spirit, which he has given us, that indwells our lives as believers. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, he transforms our life and renews us day in and day out. He makes a change within us as we go along. And that sanctification not only takes place at salvation to set us apart from a place in hell to give us a place in heaven, but it's a, a continual sanctification as well, where he transforms us into the image of son on a daily basis as we yield but also my friends he wants to change us at glorification this is in the future and this is the redemption that we will see the bible tells us that he will keep us until the day of redemption one day we will stand before his presence and just as we saw him glory or peter james and john saw him glorified and saw Elijah and Moses in their glorified body, we too will be glorified as we are finally redeemed, standing before our Savior. First John 3, 2 says, Behold, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God desires to do a great transformation process in our lives, and it begins with our salvation. Do you know him today, my friend? If you know him as Savior, there has already been a change that has taken place, but he desires also to transform us and change us as we go through the process of sanctification. That isn't something that we do ourselves. You ever heard somebody say, I need to clean up my act? It's not going to work. This is a work of the Spirit as we yield to him and search the Scriptures. He does this work of sanctifying us. But ultimately, one day, no matter how far we progress here in this life, and that's a good thing, my friend, because I've fallen way short of where I probably ought to be. But regardless of where we how far we progress in this life, we will stand before our Savior, and we will see him face to face, and he's going to change us by glorifying our bodies. And oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? As we consider the transfiguration of our Savior, Jesus Christ, what it do?
it manifested his glory. We saw the response or the motion of Peter. And it was just natural for him to want to continue on to experience those things. Because when we experience how God moves in our lives, it's just natural for us to never want to lose that. But ultimately, my friends, would you consider the message that came from God on that day? Of who Jesus is. He is God's son. And being as such, we ought to hear him. We ought to adhere to his message. We ought to adhere to his ways. Why? Because he wants to transform us just like we saw him transform that day as we read through scripture. He wants to transform us. He does it through salvation. He does it in sanctification. And ultimately, it will be a finished product at that glorification. But with our heads bowed and our eyes closed tonight, I wonder how many here would say, Pastor, I know for sure without a doubt that I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven. Could I rejoice with you? Just slip your hands up and right back down. Hands all across this auditorium. Praise God that I'm in the presence of other believers tonight. But would there be someone here tonight who would be honest and say, Pastor, I just don't know that I'm saved. I've never put my faith and trust in the Son of God. I've never called upon Him for salvation. I want to embarrass you or or call you out, but could I pray for you tonight? How many, would there be anyone here to say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Please pray for me. Just slip your hand up and right back down. Then one last question then. Who here would say, Pastor, as we consider how Peter, James, and John were able to experience and to see how Jesus was changed that day, where for just a temporary moment, the veil of flesh was pulled back. And they saw him for who he was completely, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the change that they were able to see, the change that they had seen in Moses and in Elijah there as they stood in their glorified bodies. I wonder who here would say, Pastor, that I I know tonight that God wants to make a change in me. He wants to make a work in my life. Started with my salvation. It continues through my sanctification, a work that he does in me, will culminate and end in my glorification when I stand before him one day. But how many would say, Pastor, pray with me that as I am here in this life, that I would wake up every single day and this prayer would be on my lips. Lord, guide me. I surrender to you. And we would say, Lord, do that work that only you can do in my life. I know that's a prayer that I pray daily. Would you join with me and, and allow me to pray with you that you would make that a prayer your day, every day of your life as well? Lord, guide me and transform me. I yield to you. Could I pray with you tonight? Slip your hand up and right back down. Hands all across this auditorium. And if that's truly how the Lord has spoken to your heart tonight, in your desire, I encourage you either right here at the altar or right there in your seat to call out to him and say, Lord, this is my desire. And Lord, with your help, I'll pray that every single day. I will surrender to you every single day to guide me and transform me. Our Father, we do thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this example that's laid before us about your transfiguration. And Lord, I just ask now that you would help mold us, that we would yield to you and submit our lives to you. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.